Ah, good morning. You know, um, baldness runs on my mom's side of the family. And as I say that, I am aware that I come from my mom's side of the family. So I'll let that sink in for a minute. Both of her brothers were seriously going bald when they were 17 years old. Now, my Uncle Dean, who I loved, he was a fun uncle, always hung out and played, had a youthful heart. I don't think he could accept the fact that he was going bald. So he wore this hideous, like, 16-strand comb-over. And it was like a quarter of an inch of flesh for every strip of hair. And I always wondered, did he think he was fooling anybody? You know, did he think people thought, you know, Dean, you know, the one with the full head of hair. It was ridiculous when you went over to his house and went swimming with him. Because he would come out of the water and those strands went from here to here. And then he would just kind of flip them over, hoping nobody would notice. And I'm a firm believer that it's better to have baldness with dignity than to have that dignity stripped from you. Similar to paying taxes. It's better to send your taxes in voluntarily because the government's going to get their money. They will freeze your assets and they will get their money with penalty. It is better to do something voluntarily than it is to have it forced upon you. It is better to be humble than it is to be humbled. I know this to be true because God humbled me in a very significant way. He gave me an older sister. Okay, and I will just say this. Having an older sister, and she's like two years older than me, was a totally emasculating proposition for much of my childhood. She was bigger than me, she was stronger than me, and she beat me up on a regular basis. If that doesn't challenge your manhood, that a girl can beat you up, no offense, feminists, I don't know what does. And, you know, my dad taught me, right? He taught me, you do not hit girls. You do not hit girls. I don't think they had the same conversation with her when it came to hitting guys. In fact, when we did fight and we'd go at it, I could never, like, hit her in the face because I was always afraid I would hurt her. Yeah, she had no qualms about that. So imagine a fight where you're kind of doing body punches or arm punches and they're hitting you in the face. You're bound to lose. My friends ridiculed me when they found out. They absolutely ridiculed me that your sister can beat you up until she beat them up. <laughs> I tried to overcome this humility. And I was probably in late elementary school. And I'm walking home from school and I found a boxing glove, just a single boxing glove on the sidewalk. And I thought to myself, here's my chance. Because now I can show her who's boss in a way that's playing so I won't get in trouble. And here were the rules. We'd go up to her room, put the one boxing glove on. Now, whoever had the glove on could hit. The other one couldn't hit. All they could do was defend. So one night we go up to her room and I put the glove on. And I'm, I'm getting in some good punches, you know, boom, boom. And she's defending herself pretty well. And now it becomes her turn. She puts on the glove and she starts wailing on me. 
I mean, wailing on me. And at one point, she kind of goes low, so I go to block it, and she comes up, bam, hits me square in the face, throws me up against the wall. I hit the light switch, and the light goes out. For 15 seconds, I was certain I was knocked out. But, but then I heard her voice go, what happened to the lights? And I went, oh, okay, I'm not knocked out. You know, in junior high school and early high school, she always had her girlfriends over. So you get to know them, they spend the night, and you know, you kind of like them. They're cute. And you're just like, ha, ah. You know, and they just have this attitude like, you know, Renee's punky little brother. Unfortunately for me, none of them were cougars, but... <laughs> but it was emasculating once again to my confidence with women. So again, I tried to overcompensate for it. I wrote a song. And the song went something like this. I'm such a neat guy. People come to me and say, can I be like you? And I say, scat, you are history. I walked up to people, asked them if I could give you three wishes, what would they be? And they'd say, I'd wish I was you three times. God created me in his image, others in mine, because I'm a neat guy. Now, before you stone me, I did that before I was a Christian. But the laughter just goes to prove my point. It's better to humble yourself than it is to be humbled. So we're going to turn and look at John 3.22 and see how John the Baptist handles this situation. Let me open first in prayer. Lord, you've called us to humility. And sometimes it's difficult to do. And sometimes it's difficult to see. It's difficult to even see when we're struggling with this issue. So help us all to exalt you above all else and see ourselves and our roles and our purposes clearly. Amen. Now coming into this text, I just want to point back to what's transpired. Nicodemus, a Jewish leader who lived his life following the law, had an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus told him he needed to be born again. Now, he thought he had done everything right. He thought that he had fully fulfilled everything. But Jesus was telling him, there's one more thing you need to do, and that is to be born again. You know, and to be told you hadn't done everything, everything, especially when you thought you had, can be very troubling unless you're humble enough to accept that critique. In the scripture, after this, after what I just mentioned, um, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon and Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion, some translations say an argument, arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now John's reality was surrounded in humility. He lived a humble life. He was calling the Jewish people, he was calling his followers to humble themselves through baptism. And so not only was it surrounded by life, John was calling for humility. Now baptism was common for Gentiles who were entering Judaism because they were crossing the spiritual threshold as a convert. 
And baptism can be an act of humility. It's a sign of surrender, obedience. It's an act of submission. And it can be humbling. Especially for the Jewish people. Because for Jews, it didn't make sense. I mean, they had a sort of baptism, uh, a cleansing, you know, for ceremonial washings, for, for prayer and for service. But they were confused and distraught that John the Baptist would require Jews to be baptized for the remission of sins and repentance. I mean, they had the sacrificial system set up for that. Baptism for us is a picture of a spiritual threshold crossing, a cleansing and a rebirth. But for the Jewish people, this idea was insulting. John the Baptist, in one, in one sense, was, was asking them or telling them to start over in their Jewishness. And even for John the Baptist, there was humbling and humility through baptism. You know, because when Jesus came to him, you know, John knew who Christ was, and therefore he tried not to baptize Jesus. He kept saying, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You know, you must baptize me. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You must baptize me. You know, and Jesus was setting an example for his followers as well. But Jesus stated that baptism is entirely the right thing to do, saying it fulfills all righteousness. And right after Jesus was baptized, God voiced his pleasure in his beloved son. God took pleasure in Jesus' baptism. And I just want to take a moment and encourage you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and have not yet been baptized as a believer by immersion, I would encourage you to make that commitment to do so. Humble yourselves in obedience to God. It's the right thing to do. Baptism for Christians can be an act of humility, especially if we've been Christians for a long time and haven't yet been baptized. Because you might feel like you no longer need to be baptized. But there's so much similarity between that and what the Jewish people were going through when it came to baptism. And so let me just kind of ask a rhetorical question. You know, how long do you need to be a Christian before obedience is no longer necessary? And we'll be doing baptisms in August. We'll be doing them in October. So, you know, you can sign up at the connections table. There's sign-up sheets for each, each baptism we're doing in the next few months. So... I would just uh, ask you guys, if you're considering that, go sign up for baptism. Let's continue with verse 26. And they, presumably John the Baptist's followers, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and they're all going to him. There seemed to be some jealousy going on um, with people going to Jesus for baptism as a celebrated leader. And John the Baptist takes a moment to correct this. He knows that his followers must and are encouraged to discover a new allegiance to and follow Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he's doing when he encouraged them and identified Jesus as the Messiah. Messiah. And you know what? Churches and church leaders can fall into this trap of jealousy as well. You know, simply by comparing our numbers to someone else's numbers. As if we're competing against one another. But we need to be faithful with what God has given us. We need to be grateful with what God has given us. Instead of trying to be someone else. And resenting what God has given them to steward over. 
And we might see this in our own lives. Being jealous of someone else's success and then become dissatisfied with where you're at or what stage of life you're in. With someone else's marriage. I wish my marriage was like so-and-so's. My spouse doesn't measure up. And then you become more dissatisfied and bitter toward what God has given you. Whatever the case, we are warned against being a covetous people. And John could have tried to hold on to his influence and, and hold on to his power, but we'll see his reaction in the next verse. Not only did John call for humility, John lived out humility. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. There were some that tried to elevate John the Baptist or were trying to continue to elevate John the Baptist. And this passage here is a powerful corrective. John the Baptist at this point really becomes a primary witness to Jesus Christ. Because the prophet is devaluing his own status. And he's stopping a possible rivalry and urging his followers to believe in and to follow Jesus Christ. He says it this way. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know, when I was asked to do my first wedding ceremony, I was very nervous about it. And I went to Greg's office and I talked to Greg and just shared with him, you know, ah. And he kind of tried to put my, my nerves at ease by saying, you know, basically, weddings are easy. Because you write out what you want to say and literally you could stand there and read them. Because people aren't focused on you. People are focused on the bride and groom. You know, you're not the center of attention. It's one of the easier things you're going to do. And I went, huh. Oh. Well, if I'm not going to be the center of attention, why would I waste my time? <laughs> okay, no, that's not what I said. <laughs> because having the center of attention um, is the right, in the right place is a beautiful thing. And as a pastor, you want to be in the background and just facilitate this union between this couple and God. And that is what makes it glorious. And here, John the Baptist wisely is comparing himself to the best man at a wedding. There's a heart of celebration for the groom. Not a competition, not self-pity that focuses in the right place. There's a humility there, and it's a wise and godly humility. He goes on to say that um, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Humility will come either by your own hand or by someone else's. And imagine what the outcome would have looked like if John the Baptist tried to hold on to his position of influence and power that was not his to keep and instead competed with Jesus. It's much like the best man at a wedding trying to exalt himself above the groom 
make the day all about him, that would be a disastrous ceremony. And think of the future of John the Baptist's followers if they had insisted on continuing to exalt John the Baptist. You know, we can fall into that trap. We can exalt ourselves. We can allow others to continue to exalt us. And we can even exalt others. The impulse to follow a charismatic leader is as much with us today as it was in ancient times. We've just replaced ancient names with contemporary ones. And we need to protect ourselves from that by comparing our modern day heroes to John the Baptist. You know, and here are a few warning signs to look for. That leader, that, that pastor or whatever, ask yourself these questions. Do they feel or do they communicate a moral or a spiritual superiority? Because like John the Baptist said, they're just men. They're from the earth. Do they let go of power? And do they let go of their notoriety? Do they see themselves as indispensable? Or do they see themselves as a vessel pointing to God? Do they seek to be humble? Or do they seek to be exalted? Are they becoming less so God is glorified? Do they get out of the way and make God the focus of everything? And do they claim like a private revelation from God or do they teach from the word clearly? And how about us? Are we too infatuated to allow these things to happen? Do we insist on seeing these people as superior, as indispensable and exalted even when they tell us or try to convince us otherwise? Are they our connection to God? Or is Christ and the Holy Spirit our connection to God? Do we have an unrealistic expectation on our leaders? Because again, we can elevate anyone. You know, do we see them as fallen human beings who are broken people in need of the grace of God as much as anyone? I mean, yeah, we can understand you know, that they're struggling and, and they're, they're trying to please God as best they can and they're trying to live a right life. But they do still struggle with sin and they still fall short. And when that happens, is our faith in the reality of God challenged? Because if it is, then your faith is in the wrong place. And another way that we exalt others is by just putting our heads in the sand and living in denial. You know, do we want to remain naive, keep our distance, and live in this fantasy world? That's not what we're called to. You know, we're called to authenticity. Someone very close to me, um, you know, she went to a church for quite some time, was very involved, and kind of felt like she was wronged by the church. And she ended up leaving and she went to another church and got involved there. And her husband was an elder there. She was in charge of finances there. And they were there for quite some time. And this, this division kind of arose in that church and kind of blew the church apart. 
And then again, she was hurt. And for the last six to eight years, I think, she's been going to other churches, refusing to get involved. Because she says, I just want to go. I just want to be entertained, basically. I just want to pretend like everything is perfect and go home. That's not what we're called to. And in fact, families that do that, families that, that refuse to deal with problems, that, that even pretend that problems don't exist, fall into disaster. We're called to be a body. And just like family, you know, when, when things go wrong, we don't leave. We get more involved. You know, and I would just ask, you know, do, we, do we really, would we really rather truly know someone accepting that they're flawed? Or do we want a superhero? In premarital counseling, one of the things that we talk about in marriage is that you are making an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. And everybody so far agrees. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yeah, my spouse is my future spouse or my spouse is not perfect. I get that. Yeah. But oftentimes when our spouses show themselves not to be perfect, our anger and our frustration kind of is a reminder that we always kind of sort of demanded or expected perfection from them. Much like artwork, you kind of stand back and look at this big painting, and it's so beautiful. But then as you get up close to it, you know, you can see these peaks and valleys and chunks and brush strokes and everything else, and, and it looks kind of ugly. But it is those kind of imperfections and those chunks and those valleys and those brush strokes that give that painting its beauty and its depth. And to me, that's what, that's what this is all about. We are imperfect people. We have flaws. But to see what God can do makes those flaws even more beautiful. It shouldn't eliminate its beauty because that's where it comes from. And, and for me, you know, it's wonderful to me to know that my wife knows me. She knows the worst of me. She knows my flaws. She knows my weaknesses. She knows the darkest parts of me. And you know what? She chooses every day to love me and commit her life to me. And to me, there's nothing more beautiful than that because I know that she loves me. She doesn't love this image of me. And aside from Christ, all men are flawed. And we should never exalt anyone to the point that we deny their fallenness. But it's an easy trap to fall into. Israel did it. We want a king. Up to that point, God was their king. No, we want a king. We want a man. We want someone we can follow that's going to fix our problems. We see it in today's politics. Oh my gosh, you vote for this person. Everything's going to fall apart. You vote for this person and they're going to fix everything. 
Because it's easier to put our faith in a person than it is in God sometimes because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is sight. And that's why from the beginning we have problems with idols because we want something tangible. We want something we can put our hands on. We want something we can see. Religious, religious allegiances can be very deceptive and trick us as we, if we cherish them because putting our trust in a man-made system rather than in God is sometimes easier. Make the checklist, I'm good. Are we more offended when someone insults our God or are we more in, upset when someone insults our famous pastor. Who do you get more emotionally distraught over? Our hearts can and our hearts will deceive us. This is how we buy into false teachers. This is how we drink Kool-Aid. This is how we put Reeboks on and live in a dorm waiting for the mothership to pass and take our lives. And this is how we bunker down in Waco, Texas. We need to guard ourselves. We must humble ourselves. And it says here in John 3, 30, it says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We must accept and believe in God the Father who justifies us and in the Son whose work we are justified through and in the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and transforms us. You know, we sometimes fall short in giving ourselves to a triune God. It's not enough to believe that there's a God and it's not enough to believe that there's a God and he sent his Son to die on a cross for our sins. we also must receive the Holy Spirit and be born again. Two-thirds of the Trinity, intellectual connection to two-thirds of the Trinity isn't enough. And I learned this in high school. I grew up in a home, I mean, it was a good home, um, but we, we went to church very sporadically. We never really read the Bible in our home. We really didn't have any prayer in our home but I always knew that there was a God. There was never a doubt. And I knew about Jesus Christ and that he died for my sins. And the first time I smoked pot was in the fifth grade. And people kind of went, whoa. And I went, hey, you know, kind of like that. So, you know, I continued through junior high and high school. I got really involved in that kind of stuff. And, and drinking and partying and chasing girls and doing those things that teenage boys do that don't know the Lord. And one of my classmates one day after school was waiting for a ride 
And I went out and was just chit-chatting with them. And, you know, because I'm cool, I'm a neat guy. And, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, oh, F this and GD this and GD that. And he went, whoa, whoa, you know, don't say that. And I'm what? And he goes, the GD word. I'm like, why? And he goes, because it offends me. I'm a Christian. And I'm like, I'm a Christian too. And he's like, Mah. And I'm like, what? Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe in God. And he said, yeah. There's another scripture that says, even the demons believe and they shudder. I don't think they're Christians. And it was at that moment that I knew I was going to hell. And it rocked my world. And I'm like, there's more to being a Christian than just believing in God and knowing about Jesus Christ and he walked me through it I gave my life to the Lord and and it was it was a changing moment in my life the Holy Spirit was sent as a comforter but he was also sent to convict us of our sin and to transform our lives and if we lack humility we will reject Christ and humility is simply seeing yourself as not greater than you are. And it's really not seeing yourself as less than you are. It's seeing yourself rightly. And that means that we understand our position before God. And we understand our need for Him. And we must humble ourselves by submitting to God. And surrendering ourselves fully to Him. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever rejected or refused to see your need for him? And I'll put it this way. My dad, before he gave his life to the Lord, I used to meet with him every Saturday morning. I'm sure you've heard me say that before. But um, one of the things that, that he kind of communicated to me, and this was definitely his attitude, um, was, was this. I'm a good man. I'm a good man. I'm a moral man. I really don't do anything wrong. I'm committed to my wife. I'm committed to my family. I work hard. I pour myself out for them. I try to do what is good. So if this God that you talk about could condemn me to an eternity of punishment and hell, there is something wrong with him. We must get to that point where we humble ourselves to understand that we need a Savior. And have you ever refused His love or forgiveness? When I used to witness to people in high school, so often they'd get to that point where they'd go, I see my need for Him and I know I need God, but I'm not ready. And they would go on their way, refusing rejecting his love and forgiveness have you refused to forgive yourself and live in the life of freedom that he has already paid for and have you refused obedience to him thinking that you can live however you want because God has to forgive you Hebrews says if we continually sin if we willfully continue in sin there is no forgiveness of sin because you have taken the grace of God, 
the blood of Jesus Christ, and you have trampled it underfoot. You have spit on it and treated it with disrespect. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you don't take sin lightly in your life. We don't do obedience to earn favor with God. We do it because it's right, because we appreciate what he has done for us. And if any of those describe you, I just want to challenge you. Surrender your life to God right now. Receive his love and his forgiveness. Let go of your past and walk in the newness that he has brought to you and choose to obey his every command. And if you have any questions about how to do this, there's going to be people at the connections table today that would love to talk to you. Or you could talk to me after the service. Let me just close us in prayer. Lord, Father God, help us to respond fully to your love. Soften our hearts toward you and see you rightly and see ourselves rightly. Forgive us when we fall short and allow our hearts to always be responsive to the Spirit. Help us to love you with all of who we are and for all of who you are. You are good beyond measure. Amen.